Hey guys, I just want to put out a bit of a warning before this episode. I've attempted to present the research here in the fairest, most unbiased, and accurate way possible, but I know that some of the ideas can be a little bit uncomfortable. To be quite honest, uh, presenting these ideas makes me feel a little uncomfortable too. Uh, Nothing of what we will say in any way invalidates the existence of God or any one religion, but I do think that the research challenges more conventional perspectives. So I just want to say that up front. You can choose to skip this episode if you feel like you need to. It's totally fine. That's up to you. Okay, that's out of the way. Here's the show. This is an inexact science. My name is Lisa Cantrell. Here we go. I grew up in a very religious home. When I was five years old, I got on my knees and I prayed what is called the sinner's prayer. And essentially became a Christian. My family was and is Southern Baptist, evangelical. And the idea that God was real was never questioned. It was taken as the underlying foundational assumption that there is a whole other realm an unseen realm where angels and demons battle one another for power over our minds. And where a loving and forgiving God wants to speak to his creation. Because the fact is, is that we, we serve a Savior that shed his blood on Calvary that no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, what we've been through, who we are, he still gave that life for us no matter what. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but maybe just introduce yourself really oh, briefly okay. and sure. say... Um, because of my own my background in history, I think I find stories like the one that Deborah Riley tells yeah. really familiar. Hi, my name's Deborah Riley, and um, I'm going to talk about my experience of being, of coming to being a believer in Jesus. She sat and, down and with my friend Artemy, you hear his voice in the recording too, um, and she told this really interesting and beautiful story about an encounter she had uh, with Christ. <laughs> I, I, was, I had all these young kids, you know, I had my three youngest kids, and I, I was a busy mom, and I was just sitting out on my front porch, and I was crying out to the Lord, saying, I used to have so much time with you, and I used to have such a great relationship with you, and now I'm so busy, I don't hardly have time. And I was just agonizing over that, crying out to him. And the next day, I took a walk. Um, and usually I would take this exercise walk in the woods down a path. And I would find this beautiful place where it was almost like a cathedral of pine trees. And I would kneel down in the pines and have some special time in prayer there. But this day I felt like I've got to hurry home and get busy with my housework. And so I was doing my exercise and taking my walk. And I got near that grove of trees. And just, I was brought to my knees. I did not intend to go to my knees. Just the heaviness, the kavod in Hebrew, 
the glory, which is the word heavy, was upon me, and his presence is heavy. And uh, it's light at the same time. And I came to my knees, and I, my eyes were open, and I saw in front of me, like as if looking down, at his nail-scarred feet. And I just was so in awe of being in his presence and being at his feet that I had no words, I had no prayers. All I could do was be in awe. And I wanted to stay there forever. And maybe an hour later, I heard my kids calling, Mom, Mom, where are you? And so I knew I had to get up. And I, I, I looked up and I, I saw his nail-scarred hands reaching down from heaven. And it was in a gesture of generosity. It was in a gesture of bountiful love. It was in a gesture of, I want to give you all that I am. And then when I stood up slowly, I kept seeing the vision in front of my eyes of his feet. And I, I was walking into them as if. And I heard a scripture that I didn't even know I knew by heart. And it was, as you have learned Christ, so walk ye also in him. And so it doesn't mean to step into a cloud of glory of his footsteps right in front of your eyes like I saw. And it didn't help me to walk in his footsteps to have seen that. But it was just a reminder that as I have learned about him, that I should walk in him, the things I've learned. So that was my experience. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. And the people went into their heart hey, oh, From the start they didn't know exactly why Winter came made it so look alive, look alive Underneath the grass would grow aiming at the sky These experiences are not isolated incidences. People the world over report having these encounters, and they range from seemingly physical events, so instances of the Virgin Mary statue secreting tears made of blood, to non-physical events, including many people's reports of seeing ghosts or sensing a presence or having a dream transmitted to them from the supernatural world. And researchers agree that it's not the case that these people who report these things are crazy. People who do this are... are plenty of smart. This is Tanya Lerman. There are all sorts of doctors and lawyers and, you know, professors. And, and she is an anthropologist at Stanford University who studies evangelical Christian culture in the U.S. You know, a young woman has told me a story about, you know, she's, she's, she's driving. Um, she's a little spooky because it's late at night. She's not supposed to be driving after dark. She's young. And God speaks up from the back seat and says, I'll always be with you. So it's a little spooky. And she's scared, but she's also crying with joy. And it's an audible experience. Um, people sometimes, I mean, one, another woman said that she saw the wing of an angel. My family did not talk about seeing spirits, but it wasn't something we considered impossible. There were reports within our own community 
of people speaking to angels or having near-death experiences and communicating with the other realm. And although having a vision or seeing an angel's wing was slightly less common, more rare, having communication with God, that was not rare. It was quite common, in fact. It was the foundation, and is actually the foundation of many world religions, not just Christianity. That is, when we pray, we are talking to unseen spirits. And not only do we speak to God or gods, it's very often considered the norm to hear back from God, for God to speak to us. Yes, it's ubiquitous. This is Lauren Sweeney. If you delve into a lot of not just Abrahamic religions, but uh, world religions... Lauren Sweeney is a researcher at Oxford University. The idea that there can be some kind of direct communication from God or spirits, it's ubiquitous. You know, I mean, it's not... This to me is not a strange idea. There are moments in my own life when I was heavily entrenched in the church and Christianity when I truly believed that I myself had heard the voice of God. Now, I want to be clear about something here. When I say the voice of God, I don't mean an audible voice. And in fact, when people talk about hearing from God, they typically don't mean audible. It's more like a thought inserted into your mind, only it's not yours. It's from a Holy Spirit. Yeah, I am recording. So my name is Lauren Sweeney and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Oxford and I'm also a visiting postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of Cognition and Culture at Queen's University Belfast. Out of all the researchers I spoke to and recorded for this episode, her work was the stuff that blew my mind the most. And maybe I'm screwing up by putting it first, but I just can't help it because what she's going to describe here is some of the most compelling and insane research I've ever heard of. Uh, I had a helmet that looks not totally dissimilar to the type of thing that might be used for transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is what I told them. Uh, It was actually a snowboarding helmet, and I had taped some wires, some big, thick, heavy wires out of the top of it, which disappeared into a white box in a kind of mysterious way. I brought people into the lab and I explained to them that we had this machine, it was a mind-to-mind interface, and that it was connected to somebody in another room. And the person in the other room was wearing an EEG helmet that could take electrical readings from their brain, and uh, that by this mechanism they'd be able to experience a thought that the other person was thinking. And so after they'd signed their consent form, I sat them in a nice comfortable chair and I put the helmet on their head and I fit it correctly. And then I rested their hand uh, on a table next to them and put a buzzer in their hand. And they got a really simple instruction. I just asked them to press the buzzer if they judged that they had experienced a thought that the other person was thinking. And I made it really clear to them that this was up to them. I didn't want to give them any ideas about what should make them press the buzzer or what should make them have the judgment. And importantly, I also told them that the machine might be off. So I made it really clear that for at least half of the participants, the machine would be off. And therefore, in those uh, situations, the kind of correct thing to do would be to not press the buzzer at all. And I, I basically thought that not many people would press it. And that if I ran enough people through the study, I might get a few people who were uh, had a tendency to press the buzzer and is expecting numbers to be very low. This is what I love. Lauren really didn't know if this was going to work. 
So originally, she actually wanted to investigate something a little more subtle. I was trying to find out a specific thing about whether the emotional content of, of words made a difference about whether they were misattributed to somebody else. She knew that people had these kinds of experiences, experiences when they thought someone was putting thoughts into their head, like in instances of schizophrenia, or even in cases of religious belief when people believe God is speaking to them. This happens. But what she wanted to know was, when is it so, most likely um, to happen? I told people that the person in the other room would be thinking a specific word, and I told them what that word was. So it was either a really negative word, or a really positive word, or a completely neutral word. And my hypothesis was that when they thought the other person was thinking a negative word, they would experience this word themselves occasionally during the course of the study, and they would be more likely to attribute that self-produced version of the word to the other person. And what really blew me away was that I, I nearly couldn't investigate that question. <laughs> so what happened, what happened was really amazing. So I started to notice something pretty early when I was running the study. One, I found that people believed me about the lab setup, which I was quite surprised about. Um, and the other thing that happened was that people wanted to talk to me about what had happened as soon as the study had ended. I, I nearly couldn't investigate that question. So what happened? So what happened? I, I nearly couldn't investigate that question. So what happened? What happened was really amazing. A lot of people wanted to describe their experiences to me, um, and they were really convinced by them. Um, and they wanted to say, oh, I definitely, I definitely um, experienced a thought the other person was thinking. I couldn't stop it, you know. And they wanted to tell me all about this, and I was, I was really surprised. Like I say, I wasn't expecting so many people to have this experience, and certainly not to be so confident about it. And out of all the people that you tested, how many reported having at least one, one thought that was not theirs? So out of all the people in the study, 75%, uh, uh, about three, three quarters, 74, 75%, yeah. Okay, did you catch that? I'm going to insult everyone's intelligence and repeat it. Almost 75% of the people in this study reported at least one time that they had experienced a thought being transmitted to their head during a five-minute session. This was actually a really startling finding, because again, remember, this whole thing, the contraption, the helmet, the story about a person being hooked up to an EEG machine in the other room, this is all a complete sham. It's not real. So the absolute only explanation for what's going on inside your mind is that you're generating it. There's no other option. So when you say it's someone else doing it in this scenario, it most certainly isn't. It's you. It's you convincing yourself that it's someone else. And as a side note, Lauren did find that this was more likely to happen with strongly negative and positive words, more so than with neutral words. So there does seem to be something to that idea that you misattribute thoughts more often when they are extreme in nature. However, there's a potential problem with this study. Lauren had given participants a specific word. She told them what word to be looking for. And this is kind of problematic because in, in 
a lot of contexts where we might be interested in this. You don't necessarily know, you know, what God is going to want to say to you. Is this really generalizable to real-life instances when people report sensing messages or thoughts from God? So I ran the study again, and this time I didn't tell people anything about what the other person was thinking. I just brought them in, and I sat them there for five minutes, and I just said that this machine could do this thing, but I didn't tell them anything about the content. And one of I'll go ahead and just tell you. She found this result more than one time. Even when people had zero expectation about what the message would be, they still said, yeah, I definitely sense messages coming from that person in the other room with the EEG cap. Why it's happening and why it's so prevalent. In psychiatry and in a lot of the cognitive models of what's going on here, the idea is that the thoughts are super unusual. You know, they're so standy-outy strange that that's why people go, oh, that was put there by somebody. But actually, what this uh, research seems to suggest is that what matters is the belief that somebody has beforehand that it's technically possible that somebody could be thinking inside their mind and that that is what's driving the experiences and nothing about the thoughts per se. The thing that I found so scary and fascinating about Lauren Sweeney's mind-to-mind interface experiments is that given a context in which it seems possible, really ordinary people will attribute their own thoughts, the things going on inside their own brain, to some external source. But in Lauren's study, people were told that other humans were putting thoughts into their mind, and the cover story, although a little outlandish, well, it seems plausible. I mean, given what we know about technology and the advances we're making every day, you get a scientist in a lab coat telling you that they have this machine that will transmit brain signals from one person to another. You can't blame someone for buying into this and allowing themselves to be overcome by that reality. However, this is a couple of steps removed from what is happening when people report messages from gods or spirits. Because in such instances of religious experience, We're now saying that the thoughts we are experiencing, not only are they not ours, not self-generated, but we're saying that they are in fact coming from some invisible source. A question that certainly must be answered, 
is how did we ever come up with the idea that supernatural, non-physical beings exist in the first place, ones that could speak to us? Look, if you don't believe in anything, you don't think that there are spirits, souls, gods, ghosts, nothing supernatural, you might be thinking right now, okay, this is all a case study of some subgroup of people in the world, but you're actually wrong. If you believe in nothing, you are in fact the minority. The majority of the world's human inhabitants hold some belief in supernatural beings. According to some estimates, there are over 10,000 different religions in the world. Of these, there are many flavors, as you might imagine. Some are very organized and institutionalized, and these would include the main religions of the world, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and some forms of Judaism. Some have very coherent stories to them, stories about a god or gods, the offspring of those gods, and many of them outline the role of humans in that story. And these stories about gods, offsprings, humans, they're sometimes passed down through scripture or writing. But there are also religions with no formalized scriptures. Take, for example, the Koyo. They are a group of people that live in the Solomon Islands, and Roger Keesing was an anthropologist that spent years with the group, and he wrote extensively about their religion. The group basically has a very heavy belief in ancestral presence. And in fact, it's not really considered a belief per se. It's just a part of daily life. It is their reality. This seems very different from Christianity, for example, that emphasizes faith or the choice to believe in the unseen. In Koyo culture, the living converse regularly with the dead. And these spirits, for the Koyo, they have a very real influence on everyday events. And as far as I could tell in my reading about them, they have no formal scriptures or anything, because it's not the same kind of religion that many of us are accustomed to. Belief in this case is not about converting others to be followers. It's not really about being good to obtain salvation or really that heavily entrenched in moral teachings. I'm telling you this because I want you to understand that not all religions are alike. Some have scriptures, some have stories of salvation, some have one main omnipresent God, some have many gods, some only have local deities that aren't any more powerful than humans. However, there is one universal, it seems. All religions appear to have supernatural, non-physical agents, unseen, invisible beings. But frequently, these invisible beings have some influence on the physical world. They can hear you, they can sometimes speak to you, and they can change events. So I guess the question is this, why? Why do we believe in supernatural beings? Hey, Hi. are you Justin? I am. I'm Lisa. Hi Lisa. Thank you so much. I drove down to Pasadena, it's about a six hour drive from where I live, I to talk to one of the leading researchers on religious belief. Uh, I'm Justin Barrett, I'm the Thrive Professor of Developmental Science in Fuller's Graduate School of Psychology and the director of the Thrive Center for Human Development. He's written a few different books and chapters and he's authored many scientific articles. Um, belief in supernatural agents um, or gods, uh, including ghosts, spirits, and uh, and, and of course cosmic deities and the, the whole nine yards, and then all of the practices that go around those beliefs, uh, prayer and ritual and so forth. Well, if, if that's the way we're defining religion, then it sure looks like pretty much every culture on earth has religions, and maybe always has. One of the things that drew me to Justin was his writings on what he calls our naturalness and proclivity to believe. Religious beliefs emerge from, you might think of it as the collaboration of a number of different psychological mechanisms. Uh, many of these have to do with our strongly social character as animals to read the minds of each other, to read each other's intentions, our beliefs, our desires, our emotional states. 
Uh, so to make speculations about what's going on in each other's heads, all of that is part of our human sociality. One of those mechanisms is what's sometimes been called the hypersensitive agency detection device. Uh, or HAD, H-A-D-D. Justin explains that we as humans, because of our absolute obsession with living things, we're hypersensitive to them. And we tend to see animacy and agency often when there's little evidence for it. Some of the experimental evidence that we can point to that supports something that looks like a hypersensitive agency detection device include these laboratory experiments where adults are shown, say, geometric shapes moving around on a computer screen and they seem to treat those geometric shapes as people with uh, desires, goals, intentions, um, sometimes even personalities. I mean, the most famous of these is Heider and Simmel's 1944 study. Okay, I have to stop and tell you about this study because I love it and I think it's insane. And I actually remember the first moment I saw the video used in this experiment. It had that much of an impression on me. So in this study, the researchers showed people a film the film was of geometric shapes that were just moving around on the screen. They're just shapes, nothing else. And then they asked the people in the study to simply describe what they were seeing. People viewing this film, they immediately described what was happening in terms of agency. That is, they said things like, oh, the circle is trying to chase the triangle, or the triangle is very angry. Looking across cultures and at experimental evidence and developmental evidence, it looks like humans are really sort of have a strong tendency to uh, detect minded beings in the environment around them, giving very little evidence of, of that. Um, if you're alone in a house and you hear creaking on the floorboards, you wonder who's there and who did that as opposed to what did that or what caused that. We often jump to these intentional or agentive types of explanations. We wonder who did it uh, for very good evolutionary reasons. Our greatest potential for reproductive success and survival is being able to identify other people, uh, also large predators. Well, you can't rely on seeing. You need to be able to detect their presence based on different sounds, rocks falling off of something at the wrong time when they wouldn't normally do that. And you need to be able to make rapid inferences about the potential presence of these unseen other beings. The cost of failing to detect agents is so great that you better have a mechanism that errs on the side of detecting them, even if it turns out they weren't there. We have a hair trigger sensitivity to anything that has even the slightest possibility of being alive. So it's only one more jump to then assume that a rustling the bushes is, instead of an animal, maybe a ghost, an invisible being. You hear the rustle, you look over, there's nothing there. If a human or a known animal doesn't fit the bill very well, we might be inclined to speculate about a superhuman then, who might account for what it is that we've detected. So just to be clear, Justin is not arguing that we believe in supernatural beings because every time we hear a rustling in the bushes or a creaking in the floorboard, we're always thinking, oh, that must be a supernatural being. No, the bigger argument is that the fact that we seem to jump to these kinds of conclusions, the fact that we ask who's there as opposed to what was that, that demonstrates our tendency to seek out agency in the environment, to always be on the lookout for anything that could be alive. And if you believe that we've created the idea of supernatural beings, well then the same mechanism that causes us to seek out agency in the environment may be the root of these kinds of supernatural beliefs. If we're able to conceive of agency in the environment that might actually be invisible, possibly supernatural, 
then we could have, over time, begun to create very elaborate stories about these possible unseen beings. And then, over many years and generations, these stories may have gotten passed down and may have become the foundation of current religious belief. But belief in supernatural beings is not the only thing that comprises our religions. We don't just believe that there are unseen non-physical agents, like gods or spirits. We actually tend to believe that we ourselves have some elements of non-physicality. That is, many people and cultures have a belief in souls, the part of a human that is in fact kind of supernatural. The body is material, but the soul, it can keep existing, even after the body decays. So we don't just think that there's another realm out there. Many religions and cultures have some belief in how humans can also pass into the supernatural realm. And in fact, most cultures and religions have some ideas about an afterlife. Now, obviously, they vary. Not all are heaven or hell. Some may simply state that you continue in this world, but in a slightly altered realm. But this idea also seems fairly ubiquitous across humans on this earth. That is, that we have some idea of an afterlife. Why do we think that we have souls, or that we can continue to exist even after death? I spoke to Natalie Emmons, a postdoctoral researcher at Boston University, and an expert in children's afterlife beliefs, or what she calls eternal existence. So there's been a lot of different theories kind of thrown out there as to why we have beliefs about immortality. What seems like a really intuitive explanation is that, well, we're scared of dying. So we create these ideas or these stories about what happens to people after they die to alleviate our fears of death. Developmental work has come along and sort of found that the sense that people continue to exist after death is something that's very early emerging. So there are a couple of ideas out there as to why we have belief in souls and afterlife, and they aren't totally mutually exclusive. But one hypothesis is that humans may have created an idea of an afterlife because they don't like the idea of dying. But Natalie points out that really young children, three and four-year-olds, they already show signs of believing in eternal existence, and they don't typically have the same understanding or fear of death that adults do. Natalie described a study to me. This study was done with 66 kids from Florida. So this was a study that was conducted by Jesse Baring and David Bjorklund. And they were broken into three age groups. Um, a younger age group of kids who were from three to six years of age, and an older age group of kids who um, were 10 to 12 years of age. And in the study, basically, children were shown a puppet show of a mouse and an alligator. Um, the mouse was introduced and anthropomorphized. The mouse was talked about as having all kinds of thoughts and feelings and bodily sensations, like being thirsty and hungry. And then, suddenly, in the narration, the mouse gets gobbled up by the alligator. So that's what that's what kids saw. Yeah, and so it's kind of cute and funny, um, little, you know, <clears throat> premise. And then after the after the children confirmed that the mouse was actually dead, they were asked these different questions about the mouse's capacities. They were asked about two main kinds of capacities: bodily capacities and mental capacities. Questions about bodily capacities were things like, does the mouse still get thirsty now that he's dead? Does he still need to eat? Questions about mental capacities were things like, does the mouse still love his mom? Does he still want to go home? 
basically across all ages, it was the mental capacity, so the emotions, the desire states, and the epistemic capacities that were viewed as more likely to persist than the bodily state. They seem to know that, okay, once you die, something about your body stops working. However, they answered yes to a lot of the mental capacities. That is, when asked whether the mouse still loves his mom or wants to go home, many of the children said yes. And oddly, the younger children did this more often than the older children. The younger kids actually showed stronger immortality beliefs um, than older children and adults. So that might seem a little counterintuitive because you might think, well, as people are increasingly exposed to religious information, they might hold stronger immortality immortality beliefs. I actually took a different approach and thought, no, this, this finding totally makes sense. It could be because the younger children just didn't understand the task as well as the older children. So they said yes to a lot of things. But then Natalie pointed out that it wasn't the case that the younger children simply said yes to everything. They did show some understanding that the mouse couldn't have certain bodily capacities. It was really about the mental capacities. This seems to be evidence for something that goes a bit beyond learning that we have souls. It suggests that there may be something a little more primitive in us that starts from very early and leans us ever so slightly towards this kind of thinking. And Natalie says that the thing that may lean us toward this kind of thinking, both very early on as well as adults, is, well, again, our capacity to think and reason about other human beings' mental states. And this is that second hypothesis. The hypothesis being that our belief that humans have eternal existence, well, it may have something to do with our insane sociality. We readily attribute mental capacities, intentions, goals to people. That's what kind of makes our species special, that we can think about other people's mental states, how they're different from our own. We're, we're obsessed with what people are thinking and how they're feeling and what their desires are. Like Even though my mother, I don't see her every day and I don't hear her voice every day, I can still think about and imagine what she's doing when she's not here in front of me. We are so accustomed to thinking and reasoning about others even when they are not physically in our presence that, well, when they die, it's hard to just turn it off. It's hard to flip off our reasoning about other humans and their mental states switch. Um, I think it would be highly unusual for people to discuss death in a purely, you know, reductionist manner where it's like, oh yeah, Granny died, now she's under the ground and the worms are eating her body. We don't need to worry about Granny anymore. Like, that's just not how people talk about death at all. During the grieving process... You know, people are going to continue talking about their loved ones and how much they miss them. And, you know, it's just irresistible. So someone dies. We still think about that person because for so long we were able to reason about their feelings and emotions without them being there next to us physically. Through habit, we still may reason about them even after they die. So this sensation may turn into a belief that that person, the person who's died, is still existing somewhere. And again, Natalie is not necessarily claiming that it is this sensation that causes each of us to reinvent an idea of afterlife each time someone dies. Rather, it's more about this tendency within our species to think like this that may have caused us to evolve stories of an afterlife.
So our belief in supernatural beings, that may have come from our hypersensitivity to seek out agency in the environment. And our belief in afterlife and souls may be at least in part rooted in our sociality as a species, in our ability as well as obsession with reasoning and thinking about other people's mental states. But I'm leaving out one kind of important ingredient in universality across religions. Religions all tend to have some explanatory power for us. They give order to what may otherwise be a chaotic and random world. I'm going to get, grab my tea. Yeah, sure. This is Ara Norenzayan. He is a professor and researcher at the University of British Columbia. So if you make people feel uncertain, that increases, you know, religious belief. Oh, there are lots of lab studies. Uh, I've done some of these. With Ara has done studies in which he primes people with words that evoke a sense of uncertainty. Words like random, chaos. And after being primed with these kinds of words, people will report higher rates of belief in God. With the actual belief in God? Yeah. Then you ask people how much they believe in God. Uh, when people are insecure, they turn to religion. Why did my brother die when he was 11? Why did my neighbor's house catch on fire and burn to the ground? These were good people, and bad things happened to them. If these things are simply random, there's no reason, then we have no control, no way of consoling ourselves over loss, no way of attempting to change any of it. We are at the mercy of chaos. But if there's a God, then maybe there's a bigger plan or purpose. And once we're able to give purposeful explanation to events, two things happen. The world is no longer random or chaotic. And second, if you believe in speaking to gods or spirits, beings who can possibly change events, well then, now you have a way to have some control, because you can pray and ask for things to happen or not happen, and maybe those deities will listen and shape outcomes in response. Once you are religious, you should be less, you should feel safer. There are uh, field studies, so one of my favorites is a study done in New Zealand. Uh Ara told me about a study conducted by Chris Sibley and Joseph Babuya. Basically, they found that after a huge natural disaster, the Christchurch earthquake of 2011, there was a spike in religious belief. But only among people who said they were affected by the earthquake. And those people reported an increase in religious belief. He also told me about a study conducted by Janae Benson, an economist at the University of Copenhagen. And she looks at volcanoes, earthquakes, and hurricanes. And basically, Vincent, looking across all regions of the world, found that there were higher instances of religiosity in places that are plagued by natural disasters. All of them increase religiosity. I mean, any kind of threat will do it. Um, If you make people feel that their sense of control over their life is threatened, it increases belief in God. I've always found this aspect of religion really interesting. I mean, the part about trying to find order and purpose in the world. Because it seems, maybe more than any of the other aspects we've discussed so far, to be an element of religion that sits squarely inside this crucial niche in our human psychology. We look for purpose. From preschool age, we seem to have a natural tendency to see design and purpose in the natural world around us. Justin Barrett again. It's a tendency that well, that Deb- Deborah Kellerman at Boston University has called promiscuous teleology. It's a clever little label. Um, Promiscuous there, meaning, um, well, sort of uh, all over the place and a little naughty application of teleology than a design reasoning or thinking about design or purpose. 
Um, so she's got these really clever studies, dozens of them at this point, showing that children will, if you show them a picture of uh, pointed rocks and ask them why are the rocks pointy, they tend to generate explanations that are very purposeful. Um, well, the rocks are pointy so animals won't sit on them and smash them, for instance, is one of the lines she got from a kid. Starting from very young, we ask, what is that thing used for? What does it do? And Justin says it's not totally clear why we as humans think like this, or why we start so young. I don't think any consensus has emerged yet on why promiscuous teleology would exist um, in us. Uh, but there are a number of, I think, uh, credible, uh, plausible-sounding explanations on offer. So basically, Justin says that teleological reasoning may have surfaced as a dominant trait in our species because this kind of thinking helps us in survival. If you're constantly thinking, what's that for? Then you may be more likely to think of all the ways you could potentially use a stick or a rock, like to spear fish to eat. Or if you ask, why does a bear have so much fur? Oh, it's to keep him warm, that's the purpose. Then maybe you'll be able to more easily jump to the next logical survival-driven step, and that is to then take the bear's fur and make a blanket for yourself to keep warm. It helps us in our tool making. Ironically, I want to be careful not to explain this in terms of purpose, but it may be that teleological reasoning is beneficial to our species. And if that's the case, then this kind of reasoning may just spill out into other aspects of our life, aspects in which it actually makes no sense, like asking, why is the grass green? Or why does the sun rise each day? Or why did that earthquake destroy our home? So um, the church that I, I studied and read about is the Vineyard Christian Fellowship. Um, there are something like 600 of these in the country and, and thousands of churches like them. Uh, these are churches that are sometimes called uh, New Paradigm Protestant churches. They're evangelical, they, um, which means that, that people assume that, that what it means to have faith is to have a personal relationship with Jesus and to... Um, to take the Bible literally or near literally true, uh, and they tend to really emphasize the experiential dimension of the relationship with Jesus. This is Tanya Lerman. She is an anthropologist and a professor at Stanford University. You heard her at the very beginning of this episode. And so what makes them uh, so interesting to an observer is that God is really, really personal, like he's like a person. So he's high and mighty and distant and, you know, overwhelming and mysterious. But he's also a person among people. So he's sitting next to you um, in, you know, uh, next to you at the, at the kitchen table. Tanya noticed that there were interesting reports coming from members of this church. 
They reported odd sensory experiences, moments when they saw visions or heard audible voices. They, they had stories about God actually audibly speaking to them. Um, so, for example, you know, a young woman has told me a story about, you know, she's 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 driving. Um, she's a little spooky because it's late at night. She's not supposed to be driving after dark. She's she's young. And God speaks up from the back seat and says, I'll always be with you. So it's a little spooky, and she's scared, but she's also crying with joy, and it's an audible experience. And I've heard people tell me that God, when they've been driving, God has told them to slow down, that they're driving too fast, and that a cop car passes them. Sometimes, I mean, another woman said that she saw the wing of an angel. So these are not common experiences. They tend to be pretty rare in the lives of people who report them. set out to try to figure out, you know, what is the, um, is there a way of figuring out who has what I'll call a proclivity for these kinds of experiences? And so I interviewed like 28 people and I talked to them about their experience and I also gave them a number of scales. One of the scales that Tanya gave these people was called the absorption scale. It was a survey with questions that essentially asked how wrapped up in the environment and your sensory experiences do you get? I like to watch clouds change shape in the sky. Sometimes when I'm listening to organ music, I feel as if it's lifting me into the air. Um, I can sometimes I experience the world the way I did as a kid. Questions like that. I think they're about your comfort with using your imagination. Tanya found two things. She found that people who reported odd sensory events, they were people who scored high on the absorption scale. She also found that these people tended to be those who were expert prayers. That is, people who prayed a lot and were considered within the church to be very good at praying and communicating with God. The more highly they scored on absorption, the more visions and voices they, they reported, the more absorption items they said yes to, the, the more they felt that God was a person. But prayer practice will also enable you to achieve the same end. Tanya did a second study, and I love this study. She had 100 people from one of these churches take part in it. 
These people came into the lab to do a series of tasks on a computer. And, and now I was in California. One of the tasks was a fade-in, fade-out imagery task. We faded real images in, and then we faded them out. And the participant's job was to indicate when he or she could first perceive the image as it was coming into view. And then to also, as the image was fading out, to indicate the very last moment that they could perceive it. Pretty simple. Another task was a visual attention task in which the participants were shown letters. They were scrolling through pretty rapidly on the screen. It's an odd little task. You, you watch a spinning wheel of letters. And the participants' job was to indicate when they saw a particular letter. It's kind of a hard task. These letters are flashing and scrolling by really fast. It's a maddening task. It's these things are going, you know, super fast. So the participants did these tasks, and then Tanya sent them all home with an iPod and told them to listen to that iPod for 30 minutes a day. We sent them out, um, and everybody had an iPod. And the iPods had one of two possible things on them. One group of participants took home an iPod that had a series of religious lectures. The other group took home iPods that contained a series of prayer exercises. Prayer practices that I had sort of mocked up based on what I took to be the vineyard prayer practice style, where you're trying to really have this vivid daydream-like engagement with God or with the scriptures. So the people who got the iPod with the prayer exercises, they would listen to and complete some mental imagery training that essentially was designed to train you to pray in a very specific and vivid way. You might be imagining yourself sitting with God on a park bench. You might be imagining yourself sitting in, in the throne room and the light is streaming forth. And you know, yeah. really trying to use your inner senses to enhance the prayer practice. So after a few weeks of this, the two groups of people come back into the lab and they did those two computer tasks again, the fade in and fade out task and the visual attention task. And in both of these tasks, the people that were assigned to the prayer training group, they performed better than the people who simply listened to lectures on Jesus' life. After the month of practice, the prayer group said that they could see the image for longer when it was faded out. Although both groups of people indicated that they perceived the image fading in at the same time, the people in the prayer training group, well, they reported that they could see that image for longer. Essentially, they indicated that as it was fading out, they still detected it even once the other group said they could no longer see it. On the visual attention task, the participants in the prayer group actually were faster at detecting the letters. And they, and they also reported more funny, odd sensory experiences and more meaningful funny, odd sensory experiences. I mean, this tells me that whatever happened in the prayer training group and what they did, it had an effect on their engagement with the visual environment, how attuned they are to it, how attentive they were, potentially how absorbed they were with it. And what this seems to suggest is that prayer, or at least the kind of prayer practiced in these kinds of churches, may create a feedback loop. So the more you pray, the more you may experience the world in vivid ways, the more likely you may then be to experience strange sensory events, visions, voices. The more experiences like these you have, well, the more you believe. And the more you believe, the more you may continue to pray and engage in this very personal God. Yeah, my general model is that there is a process in which paying attention to your mind changes the way that you're using mental experience, changes the way that you're, you're paying attention in general, um, and, uh, and, that, and it sort of helps to make some of those experiences feel more external and feel more real. What does all of this mean? 
I think the approach of many of the researchers here is at trying to understand how we may create the experiences we have, how we as a species may have actually created religion. So does all of this mean that it's not real? I'm going to be really honest right now and tell you I don't know. I mean, isn't this really the most human part of us, that we can have all the facts laid out in front of us, but in the end, it's hard to ignore or discount our own conscious experiences, our own gut intuitions of what is real and what isn't. And in the words of one of the researchers on this episode, and I wish so badly I'd gotten him saying this on tape, he basically said this, you know, studying human religious experience may be a little bit like studying object perception or human object representation. Just because you understand all of the psychological mechanisms that allow you to perceive and then reconstruct a mental image of an object, does that somehow mean that the object isn't real? Well, I'll just leave it at that. Thank you to the researchers who contributed to this episode, Lauren Sweeney, Justin Barrett, Natalie Emmons, Aaron Norenzion, and Tanya Lerman. Thank you to Deborah Riley for sharing her story and to Artemy Kolchinsky for recording it. The music you heard in this episode came from Agnes Obel, Rebecca Jones, Crescent Ulmer, Follies, Dust of a Thousand Years, and Sarah Allen. Swing Low was performed by me and Taylor Rogers. Taylor has an album out. You can find it on iTunes. It's called Wax and Wayne. It's really great. And a very special thanks to Sarah Allen again. She was a major help in suggesting the researchers for this episode and in putting me in contact with them. If you go to Lauren Sweeney's research page, you can actually find a picture of Sarah modeling the mind-to-mind interface helmet. And you can find links to all of the researchers and musicians on our website at inexactscience.podbean.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please, please, please subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. And tell someone about it. Send them the link. Also, be on the lookout for a shorter bonus track on atheism, a topic we just didn't have time to discuss on this episode, and keep an eye out for the next big episode of An Inexact Science, Forgetting Who We Are. So it used to be that when he uh, was beginning to lose his memory, only the people that were close to him could really tell. So no one else, if you just met him, you would really not know. I've got who has blue eyes? Your daddy? Mm-hmm. That's your oldest son. What's his name? Do you remember? I don't remember. I think there's a certain view of life as aiming to make memories. He's at the point where anyone who sits down with him for even five minutes or three minutes uh, immediately knows that his memory is not there. So my name is Bill Jagist. I am a professor of uh, neuroscience and public health at the University of California, Berkeley. Dementia is a syndrome. The dementia syndrome basically refers to people losing cognitive ability. Marion is my oldest son. Mm-hmm. How old is Marion? And because of that loss of cognitive ability, they lose the ability to do their activities of daily living. We could only say someone had Alzheimer's disease with certainty if we see uh, these plaques in the brain that are composed of this amyloid protein uh, and tangles in the neurons that are composed of a tau protein. He will ask someone's name, I'll tell him, and literally a minute later, he'll ask who they are again. Her friend had a quote that said, we're in the business of making memories. That also seems limited. That's kind of selling out your present for the future or something like that. We're all going to die, right? So wouldn't you rather die at 90 of a heart attack than get Alzheimer's when you're 70 and live to 90 with Alzheimer's disease, right? No one 
would argue that that's a better life. I was going to hold your hand. What? I was wanting you to hold your hand. hand. Is that all right? Yeah. I think it's limited. I guess.